So today, church, is Reformation Sunday. It is a Sunday that we affirm that we're children of the Reformation as being part of the Protestant church. The Reformation was a 16th century phenomenon that we celebrate because it was a recovery of the gospel after it had been layered under for centuries by tradition after tradition after tradition. There were five solas of the Reformation, which means alone. It was grace alone saves us, the God's grace working in our heart, which allows us to exercise and have faith alone in the finished work of Christ alone, to the glory of God alone, and our authority is the Bible alone. In Romans chapter 8, it talks about the grace of the cross. And Paul writes in verses 1 through 4, There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For what God has done He has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God, verse 14. So, so Paul says here there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus for what we could never do in a thousand lifetimes with all of our effort could never be accomplished to make us right with God. God made us right in the eyes of the living God by becoming a man and dying on the cross for our sin. Behold the glory of the gospel. There's a man named Augustus Toplady who wrote one of the most well-known hymns in Christendom entitled Rock of Ages, cleft from thee, let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flowed be for sin the double cure, save from wrath, and make me pure. And then he says this, it's the gospel. Not, not the labors of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite no? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save and thou alone. Next stanza. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless come to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior. Or I die. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked, come to thee for dress. Clothe me in the righteousness of Christ. Helpless, I come to thee for grace. Foul, I to the fountain fly, the fountain of the forgiveness of sins. Wash me, Savior, or I die. So, so grace alone, by faith alone, through the work of Christ alone, to the glory of God alone, by the authority of the Bible alone. So the Reformation started in the 16th century. Very broadly, there's a man named Martin Luther, who's an Augustinian monk, and I'll rehearse with, with you again, Lu, 
Luther was uh, a monk driven to despair, and finally his spiritual advisor, a guy named Johann von Eck, said Luther studied the Bible, so he studied the Bible, and he came to see that he was declared righteous in God's sight, not because of what he did, but because of what Christ has done, and that awareness led him further and further down the path of grace, and there was a man named Tetzel who was running around Germany raising money to build St. Peter's Basilica, and he was selling indulgences, and he had a little statement that said, the moment a coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. And what he was saying is that if you give enough money, then you can buy your loved one's way out of purgatory. And he went further, he said, if you give a certain amount of money, then you can buy yourself out of purgatory and cover the sins you'll cover from this day forward. And Luther finally, after hearing this, said, enough is enough. And so in October 1517, he nailed 95 statements on a church door in, in Germany, a place called Wittenberg. And it was like a runaway freight train. He started publishing pamphlets and sermons and small books. And finally in 1521, after he'd already been excommunicated by the church, they asked him to come to a disputation or made him come to a place called Worms. And while he was there, he went there on an ox cart, a two-wheeled ox cart, just in, in his Augustinian monk robe. And he stood before the Holy Roman Emperor Charles V and the crown heads of Europe and the leaders in the church. It was an incredible scene. And they had Luther's writings piled on the table. And they said, Martin Luther, the Holy Roman Emperor, Charles V said, do you, do you recant of your teaching?" And Luther was unhinged because he really believed that if he said, I do not recant, they would just execute him. And so he said, can I have a, a night to think about it? He said, yes. So he labored through the night, got up the next day. Martin Luther, do you recant? And then he said one of the most incredible things, I think, in church history. He said this. He said, I do not recant. Because unless I am convinced by Scripture or by clear reason, for I do not trust either in the Pope or in councils alone, since it is well known that they have often erred and contradicted themselves, I am bound by the Scriptures. Here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. Amen. And he started this thing called the Reformation. But I want you to see very clearly. Luther said that, that councils can err, popes can err. I say community groups can err, preachers can err, boards can err, agencies can err. But God's Word is true. God's Word does not err. So, so God's Word is our authority. And so 130-some years later, there's a group called the Westminster Divines who adopted the Westminster Confession of Faith. And this is what they said in part in the very first chapter of the, of, of the Westminster Confession of Faith. They said, our authority is the Scripture unto which nothing at any time is to be added whether by new revelations of the Spirit or the empty traditions of men. And they were 
talking about the polar opposites. There were some people running around saying, the Holy Spirit says, the Holy Spirit says, and they're saying our statements are equal to Scripture. And they says, no, the, the Bible is closed. The canon's closed. God has given us his word. We don't need further revelations in that regard. So a pox on that house. Conversely, over on this end of the extreme, a pox on empty traditions that are not based upon Scripture, that, that people give equal weight with Scripture. So a pox on both wings of that type of thinking. And, and so that's what, it's a wonderful statement. This week, I went to see my mom and dad. My dad's 90, my mom's 85, and they're, they're doing great. They're wonderful people. Um, unknown to me, though, I got there just in time to go to the monthly get-together of my dad and his cousins at the K&W cafeteria. Uh, and if his cousins and my dad, they're older, so the K&W cafeteria is nirvana. It's culinary nirvana. So we went to the K&W cafeteria. And there were cousins there of my dad that I'd never met before. Uh, or hadn't seen in years. And I was sitting across from a couple that I, I don't, I've, I've never met. They're really nice. They were, the, they were the youngsters of the group. They were 78, 75. And so we were talking. He couldn't hear very well. So it was a pretty loud, loud conversation. And so she says to me, what do you do? I said, I'm a pastor. She says, what kind of pastor? And I almost said, a good one. But I, I didn't. I didn't want to be. I, I, said, I said, I'm a Baptist. And then she said this. I don't always hear this. I love Baptist. <laughs> oh, okay. Then she said, we're part of, and she filled in the blank, another denomination because my husband's been that way. She says, I, I, our denomination doesn't believe in anything. Everything is gray. But you, for you Baptist, everything's black and white. I want to say, whoa, you know, time out. Couldn't get into a talk about the authority of the Bible and ecclesiology. I want to say, hopefully it's black and white if it's here by principle or by precept. But when it comes to traditions of men from the 1920s or the 2015 or whatever, they're just traditions. See, the Bible judges all human conduct, creeds, and religious opinions. It's the scripture alone. And, and so that, that's, that, that's, that's our confession. So this is my thesis this morning. My, my thesis this morning is that, is that to know and experience the authority of the Bible, I must read it under the power of the Holy Spirit, understanding the historical standing of God's people through the ages in community with God's people today. I need to read the Bible and study the Bible in community because I can err. Councils can err. Boards can err. I need to read it with God's people. So in the process of affirming the authority of the Bible, it is possible, church, and even likely, to limit the power of the Holy Spirit in taking Scripture and shaping our character because we do not walk in obedience to the Word of God. So, so it's, it's, unless I read it under the power of the Spirit to be transformed, I, I limit the authority of God in my life. The, the Westminster Divines also wrote this, which I thought was so, such a balanced statement, saying this, Nevertheless, we acknowledge the inward illumination of 
the Holy Spirit of God to be necessary for the saving understanding of such things as are revealed in the Word. The Holy Spirit teaches us the Word. The Holy Spirit exalts Christ. The Holy Spirit opens our eyes to understand. There's a book entitled The Doctrine of the Knowledge of God by a man named John Frame. It's a big book. It's very readable. It's a good book. And John Frame talks about uh, this issue, and he says that there was a man named Friedrich Schleimacher who lived in Germany in the 1840s and 50s and 60s. And Schleimacher was kind of the father of some modern-day thought. And Schleimacher said this. He said, you know, it doesn't make any difference how you define God or where you find God, or what you say God is, or how He exists. The important thing is that in some mystical way, you've had an experience in your heart with the God who is as you define God. That's just heresy. That's just heresy. That's Friedrich Schleimacher. On the other end of the spectrum, he said, and, he said, and his frame says, I'm much closer to this thinking. There are those who talk about theology as a science. As a science. And he says, I understand what they're saying. He names some people that I respect. He says, but we need to realize that, that the Bible is a living document that, that judges us, that shapes our character, that shows us how, how to think. Remember what Jesus says in Luke chapter 8, verse 18, when he says, be very careful how you hear the word of God. And so, unless I'm reading on the power of the Spirit, with an understanding of the past in community with God's people, I'm not reading the Bible as I should because the Bible is given to change me. So church, be very careful how you hear. So I want to go to Hebrews this morning, you know, this Reformation Sunday, and, and talk to you about that for a few minutes. In Hebrews chapter 1 and following, the, the writer of Hebrews is very concerned about the church of his day. And that they were sliding, they were drifting they were not watching themselves. Listen to some of these verses. Hebrews 2, verse 1. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. And it says, you know, some of you people are, you're, you're just drifting. Chapter 3, verse 7 and 8 says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness. Harden your hearts. Verse 12, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. He says, you know, just be careful. An evil, unbelieving heart that, that falls away. Guard yourselves. Chapter 4, verse 1, Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us Fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. Walk in the reverence of God. Don't take, have a cavalier attitude. Just Then he says in chapter 4, verse 11, Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Strive. He says, wake up, church. Then he says in verse 16, let us draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Time of need. So you say, well, what, what, what was the problem? Why were these people drifting? And why is the writer of Hebrews concerned about them falling away? Why, why is he saying, be careful that you don't have a, an evil, unbelieving heart? Well, why does he have to tell them time after time to strive? Here's what happened. It's in Hebrews chapter 5. 
Hebrews 5, verse 11 through 14. Scripture says, About this we have much to say to you, but it's hard to explain since you become dull of hearing. They're suffering from dullness of hearing. Dullness of hearing basically means that you're not applying what you're hearing. And then he gives the pattern. Verse 12. For, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. And you've come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who lives only on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to discern good from evil. Here's what he's saying. He's saying that the problem with the church that he's addressing is that they're like a, a baby drinking in milk, but the milk never nourishes their soul. They're drinking in the milk of the Word of God, but it doesn't turn into fiber and muscle and strength and growth because they're not applying what they're hearing. He says you have need, once again, to be taught basic principles and have that applied to your life. Sometimes I've read this passage and thought, well, he's talking about strong doctrine and weak doctrine. That's not what he's talking about. I've become convinced I've been wrong for years. What he's talking about is are people that, that, that drink the milk, but the milk never gets to the rest of their body. It never develops the muscles and the strength and the, and the, and the, and the growth that's necessary. Because, the, the, he says, the, the remedy is verse 14. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment, trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. So if, if you want to see spiritual maturity, go to wise and people who, who for season after season after season have, have taken the word and they've put the word in their mind and, and they've said, Spirit of the living God, Fall fresh on me and teach me, teach me what it means to be changed. God, work in my heart. And so as I've read this, I thought, you know, is the Word of God changing me? Has this week something happened in my life as I've read the Bible, thought the Bible, sung the Bible, memorized the Bible to make me think, this is out of line. Get it back in line. This relationship needs to be restored. This needs to be done. I don't want to see the, the Bible as even primarily a science. It is a living book that changes me by the Spirit. I, I was, the other day I was at a, this, this meeting. Anyway, and during the meeting, just a bunch of people in the community, in, in the meeting, the person in charge quoted a quote that said, we're not human um, People that are static were human becomings and how we need to change. And I thought, no, that's, that's a pretty cool quote. And they said, that was by Jackie Chan. No? Kung Fu. No. Jackie Chan. And the Kung Fu fighter. And so I went, wow. Okay. You know, I thought, thank God for common grace. That, that all people are made in the image of God. And all people are able to express beauty and truth because they're made in the image of God. And that was a true statement. But then I thought... We have so many more wonderful statements about what it means to be a human being from the Bible. 2 Corinthians 5, if any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away, the new has come. And I just thought, how many of us go through life who are believers, 
quoting nice little ditties from Hallmark instead of really teaching and thinking the Bible. And this is, this is God's Word. And then there's, this, is, this is a quote from a book called Hunger for God by John Piper. I thought it was just outstanding. He said, he said the greatest enemy of hunger for God is not poison, but apple pie. It is not the banquet of the wicked that dulls the appetite for heaven among God's people, but the endless nibbling at the table of the world. It is not the X-rated videos, but the primetime dribble of triviality that we drink in every night. I think that's a great statement. And I, I thought it's true of me. I, that that it's, it's not bad stuff. It's just it's good stuff that have just taken more authority than it should. So I'll just this is what happened to me three weeks ago. Three weeks ago on a rain weekend when we were just underwater. There was a football game played that Saturday night, and it was Clemson and Notre Dame. And I've got to tell you, I'd look forward to that game with more anticipation and joy, and, and just I was just so excited about that game. And I kept checking, are they going to postpone the game because the storm's supposed to hit Clemson during the game? And, and are they going to move it up? And then they know it's going to be at 8 o'clock or what, 7.30, whatever. It just kick off. I said, oh, man, this, I, I am ready. I, got, I took a nap Saturday afternoon because I said, I'm going to be up late. And I'm going to be preaching Sunday. I'm going to be fairly fresh. And I got to preach. So, so I said, I'm, 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 I'm ready. So, boom, game comes on. I'm sitting there. And, then Deshaun Watson runs for 835 yards the first time he touches the ball. And uh, they score. It's 7 to nothing. And then in turn, they score again. It's 14 to nothing. And it's like unbelievable. And I'm excited. And the power goes out. <laughs> and five minutes later, the power comes back on, but the TV does not come on. I slip over next door and look in my neighbor's window. No TV. <laughs> and so it's, it's 9 o'clock. And I go... Go to bed. I mean, I did wake up at 3 o'clock and turn on ESPN and say, they won, they won, yeah. But I went to bed, and I, I'm laying there going, you know, Lord, thank you for teaching me a lesson, but this isn't a very fun lesson. You could do it in a lot of different ways than making me miss this ball game. But to me, it was kind of a statement saying, be very careful not up, that good things don't take more emotional energy in life than they really should. So, so as, as, I, as I look at this, I ask myself, self, how do you combat dullness of hearing? How do you combat dullness of hearing? Let me just give you two points very quickly. Number one is desperation. Desperation, when you see into the abyss of your heart and you see what you could be, what you could do, and, and you think, uh, apart from the grace of God, I could go there. I, I need a place to stand. I, I need a place to plant my feet in the tsunamis of life, in the torrential downpours of life, and the Bible gives me that. I, I am desperate to hear from God and to be empowered by the Holy Spirit as I read the Bible and think the Bible and receive the Bible. Desperation. The second is a, a belief that the scripture is that which gives soundness and soundness in the Bible. The word sound means life-giving, life-enhancing, joy. It's a great word, sound. 
It, it leads to soundness of living. Let me read some verses. This is First um, Timothy chapter 1, verse 10. It says this, that, that these commandments are for men who do these acts and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Sound Sound doctrine. Chapter 6, verse 3 in 1 Timothy. Teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words, hear that? Life giving, life enhancing, joy producing words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. These are sound words, sound doctrine. The book of Titus. Titus chapter 1, verse 9, an elder. It says, an elder must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So, so an elder is to be able to teach and to give instruction in life-giving, life-enhancing, joy-producing doctrine and rebuke those who contradict it. Then he talks about older men. What are older men to be like? Chapter 2, verse 1, For as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded and dignified and self-controlled and sound in faith and love and in steadfastness. I, I, I read that and I go... God, bring soundness to my life. Bring soundness to who I am. Let me see that. Let me see that. To the glory of your name. So my question to you and to me is, as a church, we affirm the authority of the Bible. But do we believe in the sufficiency of the Scripture and that that which convicts and confronts and shapes and pushes and prods and brings repentance that leads to soundness of life and soundness of doctrine and soundness of relationships and soundness in the family and soundness in circles of influence. Thanks be to God for the gift of, of His Scripture. Let's pray. Lord, today we thank You for the goodness of of Scripture. Um, we thank you that we stand in a glorious heritage of men and women who have gone before us, who have paid, in many cases, with their lifeblood as they're, as they're doing so today because they love the gospel of grace. So Holy Spirit, come into our lives and take the Word and change us and shape us and move us to the glory of your name. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We thank you for your goodness. Thank you that you're God who brings soundness into our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.